Today's reading is from Acts chapter 12, verses 1 through 17. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with a sword. When he saw that this met with approval among the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the festival of unleavened bread. After arresting him, he put him in prison, handed him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. The night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries stood guards at the entrance. Suddenly, an angel of the Lord appeared and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Quick, get up, he said, and the chains fell off Peter's wrists. Then the angel said to him, put on your clothes and sandals, and Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me the angel told him. Peter followed him out of the prison, but he had no idea that what the angel was doing was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. They passed the first and second guards and came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them by itself, and they went through it. When they had walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. Then Peter came to himself and said, Now I know without a doubt that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were hoping would happen. When this had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. Peter knocked at the outer entrance, and a servant named Rhoda came to answer the door. When she recognized Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed she ran back without opening it and exclaimed, Peter is at the door. You're out of your mind, they told her. When she kept insisting that it was so, they said, it must be his angel. But Peter kept on knocking, and when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. Peter motioned with his hand for them to be quiet and described how the Lord had brought him out of prison. Tell James and the other brothers and sisters about this he said, and then he left for another place. This is the word of the Lord. The title of my sermon this morning is Surprised by God. You can see why. Um, There's occasions where you're surprised by other people, right? Um, It happened this morning. I was uh, sitting on the front row, um, and before the worship service ever started, my wife showed up. It's like, and and seconds later, Lori Mangrum came in right behind her. I mean, maybe it's not a miracle, but it's pretty close. Those two women are lovely, but they never show up to church on time. So my conclusion is, it must be Father's Day. <laughs> No, this is a wonderful story, isn't it? I mean, these people are surprised by God. They're, they're just shocked. They can't believe what just happened. It's got all kinds of elements to it, this story. Interesting, fun elements. I mean, to begin with, Peter is getting ready to go to trial the next morning. And he is sawing logs. I mean, he's deep in sleep. 
And an angel shows up and basically pokes him in the side and says, Sleepy boy, wake up. It's time to get up. Peter is so groggy and so confused, he doesn't know what's happening. I guess he's enjoying his sleep so much, he thinks it must be a dream or a vision. And eventually, it becomes clear to him, once he, you know, gets the sleep out of his eyes, that this is for real. I've just been delivered from prison by an angel of God. Of course, the story continues, and it's even more fun and fascinating because they go to Mary's house, which probably was a rather large house uh, because the believers were gathered there. Some people even think that Mary's house was the house where the upper room on the day of Pentecost uh, was located. At any rate, they go to Mar- he goes to Mary's house because he knows people will be there. It's a, a prime spot for these kind of gatherings, and he goes and uh, tries to get inside and let him know he's okay. And of course, um, somebody's knocking at the door during the prayer meeting. You, you, got, you got to see it this way. They're all praying earnestly for Peter's release. I mean, they're very serious praying for Peter's release. And this is serious business, and a knock comes at the door. And I'm filling in the gaps here. But Mary, the owner of the house, says to Rhoda, the servant girl, go answer the door. In other words, we're busy here. Important stuff is happening. Go answer the door so they'll stop it already. She goes to answer the door, and Peter speaks from the outside and says, it's, it's me, let me in. Well, she knows his voice, and she's delighted. And she runs back in and tells the whole group, Peter's at the door. And they say to her, you got to be crazy. <laughs> in spite of the fact they've been praying for Peter's release, surely. you got to be crazy. It must be his angel. Now, that reference um, is, is probably a pretty common kind of thing. Uh, we know in first century uh, Judaism and even uh, in first century uh, other parts of the world, routinely people thought that a person had an angel that was associated with them, a guardian angel like sometimes we hear about today. And so it was quite natural for them to say, oh, it can't be him, it must be his angel. Maybe they thought he was already dead. Maybe they thought he would never get out. Whatever the reason, they couldn't believe their ears or their eyes. And finally, she insists, and Peter keeps knocking, and they open the door, and sure enough, it's him. And they're delighted by the grace of God, surprised right out of their skin. Then Peter says to them, "Uh, here's what happens, and he told them the story. And then note this, immediately, Peter says, I want you to tell James, not the one who has just been killed, Probably James, the brother of Jesus. I want you to tell James and the other brothers and sisters. And then he leaves. As a matter of fact, there is no record where Peter went. But if you continue to read in the text, they made a dramatic search, Herod and his soldiers, for Peter and couldn't find him anywhere. He just disappeared. Of course, as is standard practice, the soldiers who were holding the prisoner were executed for being derelict in their duty. Peter disappears. Where did he go? No one seems to know. 
As a matter of fact, there's some speculation, but it's not grounded necessarily in history, that Peter left and went undercover and fled and even went to Rome, away from everything, just to wait till the persecution died down before he returned. But he did come back. He left and came back again. Now, this wonderful little story could be seen in a variety of ways, right? Um, I want to break it down into a couple of parts. First, this is a story about natural human circumstances. What do I mean by that? This story of persecution and imprisonment should have been expected by the disciples. There's no reason they should have been surprised by this. Why? Because they had been told repeatedly, stop preaching in the name of Jesus, and if you don't, there will be reprisals. You'll be back in jail. James had already been executed. These things are going to happen when you preach the gospel. So these circumstances really are quite natural. There's nothing unusual about this. Of course, troubling, but not unusual. Not only that, they're, they're quite natural and ought to be expected based on Jesus' words. He told the disciples that when I leave, I'm going to commission you to share the good news with the world. And your commissioning is going to include persecution. They're going to hate you, they're going to beat you, they're going to mock you, and they're going to kill you. So strap on your big boy pants and go out and do what I said to do. Tell people about me. So these circumstances that are natural should have been totally expected. There's another reason they are expected. And we see this in the text before now. What was happening with the disciples was a threat to the establishment. It was stirring up things. Things weren't placid like they had hoped for. And the rulers were concerned about the possibility of Rome cracking down on their nation because of these disturbances. And also, they probably were concerned that they were losing control over these disturbances. So all of these things are very natural occurrences and ought to be expected. There's one other reason that they're natural occurrences. You know the famous bumper sticker, which I won't quote word for word, that's on the back of many cars? Stuff happens. You know the famous phrase that I haven't seen on the back of a car, but stuff rolls downhill? Here's the thing. Sin happens. Evil happens. Horrendous nightmare events happen. Initiated by evil human beings on others who are innocent. That kind of thing happens. It's our world. It's called sin and evil, light and darkness, good and bad. It's the reality we live in. And sad to say, it's very natural. Sin happens. You know, there's no suggestion, actually, 
that the disciples, the believers, were surprised by all this. The reason I mention it is because often we're different in that regard. We are surprised by it. They didn't seem to be. So first we have a, a series of natural events in this story. And then in this story we have obviously a divine intervention. An angel shows up. A miracle occurs. Give me a few moments on miracles, will you? And uh, follow with me. There's lots of criticisms about miracles. Even skepticism about whether or not they exist or they're possible. Maybe that's not your perspective, but surely you understand you live in a world where it's the perspective of many, many people. And there could be any number of reasons why people doubt miracles. Some would say it's just not a part of the natural order of things, right? Miracles just don't happen. As a matter of fact, the natural order is a scientific order that we see all around us and we can examine it. And miracles stand outside, says the critic, of scientific investigation. And they're right. Miracles do. Some suggest even that miracles are a fiction of history. They're made up for a purpose. Stories, perhaps in this case, to give people courage or to inspire faith. Th those are two common objections to miracles, right? But there's problems with the objections. Surely we know that. The problem with the first objection, it's not a part of the natural order of things. It's not consistent with science. Well, I guess the response to that is pretty simple. All of life is not reducible to science. And we know that intuitively. Common phrase, but true. You can't put love in a test tube. But it's reality. It changes lives and it changes our world. It's beyond scientific investigation, but, but it's true. By the way, I'm a sucker for um, those things that pop up uh, on the front page of MSN, which is my home page, and, and there's stuff like 25 scientific reasons for X, right? I love those things. I, I never pass them up every time I click on them. I'm telling you, I do every time. I mean, and there's scientific reasons for everything, right? It could be scientific reasons. I remember, I don't remember the reasons, but I remember scientific reasons for why you're attracted to a particular person. And I was thinking, okay, so scientifically, why did I marry my wife? 
I'm going to figure this one out. No, really, I'm not that serious about it, but I thought it was intriguing, so I decided I would look. And again, I can't remember all the details, but when I got to the end of it, I was just humorized. You know, it's not because there weren't some things in there that made sense. That, that wasn't why it humorized me. It was because the essence of this article, and again, I know it's pop science, right? But the essence of this article, quoting all kinds of sources, most of them unnamed, it's sort of like in the old days we used to say, they say, who are they, you know? Um, some internet survey. The point is, all these sources that they continued to quote about why I happened to fall in love with a brown-haired, brown-eyed girl were intriguing. Because some parts of it, I thought to myself, hmm, I may be onto something there. And then at the end of it, it was clear to me, like all those articles, <laughs> that was the answer. According to the author, here's the answer. You don't need to go any further. I've given you all the reasons why you fell in love with that particular person and why you're attracted to this particular thing. End of subject, there's the answer. That's what's so laughable about that particular scientific approach to existential reality. It is not the answer. It contributes to our own self-understanding, but it does not give us the full answer. Science never does. As wonderful as it is, it never does. That's why there always will be a category in the university called metaphysics. It means beyond or above the physical. There is a reality that exists above the physical. So the problem with trying to reduce everything to science is it just doesn't work. But the second criticism or objection that I mentioned is that somehow people think that, well, miracles are sort of like a, a lie of history. People create them for whatever reason. Uh, there, there's a problem with that too, a real problem with that. And it's quite simple. History itself is at its baseline a record of events, things that happened. And if you begin with the presupposition that miracles cannot happen as a part of the recording of history, you already know that miracles cannot happen. As a matter of fact, to assume that miracles cannot happen as a part of human history is really poor history. Very poor history. If I'm a historian and I'm not a professional historian, it's my job to detail or to chronicle events, things that happened. And then, even though historians might want to suggest this doesn't happen, read any textbook and you'll find out it does, then they tell you why they happened. 
If you don't believe that, open up any history textbook and see if you can find two or three chapters in that history textbook that record the events of World War II without suggesting any of the causes of World War II. History is about things that did happen and about why things happened. And if we exclude out of hand miracles, we're suggesting that history happens this way before we investigate it. That's just improper history. Now, having said that, I also want to add this. History must be open to multiple interpretations. We must allow for history to include miracles, but we must also allow for interpretations concerning those events or miracles. Um, this is going to take a little bit of a different turn. That's why when we read historical accounts such as these and embrace them as history of miracles and believe them, we cannot at the same time suggest that those who do not believe them are irrational any more than we do not want people to say, when we believe them, we are irrational. Accepting or not accepting miracles and accepting or not accepting certain interpretations of miracles, both on either end are rational possibilities. So what's all that about? It's time to make a choice. That's always the way it is with faith. You have evidence for God, but not proof. So you make a choice. You believe in the sovereignty of God, but it doesn't seem like God's anywhere in the picture. You make a choice. You see recorded miracles, and you wonder, you make a choice. So miracles require choice. Interpretation even requires choice. But what's so interesting about miracles is not just all that, um, although that's really interesting to me and I could talk about it a lot more. <laughs> but what's really interesting about miracles is how people respond to them. Sometimes people respond to miracles, as we've already mentioned, with pure skepticism. Some would say it's just a lie of history. Others would say, a little more generously, well, it's not really a lie, it's just kind of a magic twist. Sleight of hand, you can't be sure. It appears to be that, but it probably is something else. And some are even more gracious than that, and they say it's, it's a wish fulfillment. You need these things to survive. You need to believe this kind of stuff, whether it's true or not. That's one reaction to miracles. Another reaction to miracles is just fear. 
Right? You see this in the Scripture all the time. An angel shows up and people go face down. They think they're dead. They worry that everything's going to come to an end. The world's come. You see that kind of reaction all the time. It's complete fear, and, and I think justifiably so. If uh, you were walking through a dark room tonight, and a huge, great, bright light appeared before you, which was the silhouette of a person, tell me you wouldn't be scared. Of course you would be. You'd be terrified. So reactions to divine intervention are skepticism, sometimes fear. Sometimes reactions to divine intervention are just complete bewilderment. You're just confused. Isn't that Peter's story here? He wakes up and he's not sure he's awake. He sees the light, the angel's talking to him and he's not quite ready to figure it out because he can't understand it? I don't think it was just because he was groggy. I think it was because sometimes when God shows up in miraculous ways, it is confusing. We don't get it. We're confused by the reality that's right in front of us. Other times when miracles happen, people just don't have the faith to believe. The miracle's right in front of them. But they think of anything else. Or they just can't even see it because they don't have the eyes of faith. And then there's other times, and this is the last one, <laughs> where miracles just shock us. We're just like, what? Seriously? There's lots of ways to interpret this miracle right here. But mine is the final one. What? Seriously? You mean God did that? I don't think these people lacked faith. They'd seen this kind of thing happen before. I don't think people lacked the ability of God to show up with an angel or any other way, a divine intervention, these people knew this stuff happened. They believed it. They'd experienced it. So I don't want to discount them and say it was a lack of faith. Some people do. You could use that interpretation. What I want to suggest is that they were just like, are you serious? I can't hardly believe my eyes. Maybe you've been there, or maybe you will be there, absolutely surprised and shocked by the grace of God. I hope you have been, and I hope you will be. But when we think about things like this, miracles and God surprising us, I think it's important to, to note the perspective of the disciples here and other places. I mean, one perspective of the disciples goes something like this, and you've heard this verse quoted before. It's an attitude of trust. When you got your back to the wall and everything's going wrong and you feel like God has deserted you or circumstances are against you, it's time to trust. It's time to remember that proverb that all of us love so much. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. 
That proverb, by the way, is Proverbs 3, 5, and it begins, as many Proverbs do, counseling my son. I want to tell you something, son, about life. I want you to trust in the Lord with all your heart, and don't lean on your own understanding. You cannot figure it all out, my son. In all your ways, no matter where you are, when your circumstances surround you in ways that are oppressive, I want you to trust in God, and He will... Make your path straight. Trust in the Lord in every circumstance because you know God is sovereign. Also, there's another phrase I love. Um, Cast all your cares on the Lord for He cares for you. Oh, you know who wrote that? Peter. He wrote it after this episode. 1 Peter 5, 7 which talks a lot about persecution and hard times in life. Cast all your cares upon the Lord because He cares for you. I think maybe he had already learned the lesson because he was sleeping like a log and he knew the next day was the trial. So an attitude of trust is the perspective of a disciple And the perspective of a disciple is an eternal point of view. If you're going to walk with God through all circumstances and experience the power and the might and the miraculous nature of God, I think it's important for you, for us, to hold on to an eternal point of view. Why? Because if you don't, even the miracle doesn't make sense. Why do I say that? Remember what happened at the beginning of this passage? James was put in prison by Herod. And what happened to James? He was executed. Peter, James, John. In the midst of that grief and that loss, God steps in and intercepts another execution which may have been inevitable after Peter's trial. Why not James? Did you ever wonder to yourself whether or not James's family was saying, I'm happy for you, Peter, but I miss my brother. Why didn't God show up for him? We have to hold on tenaciously to an eternal perspective. And you know what that means? It means that we believe in God as sovereign and good, but cannot understand the details, except to say that we know the end of the story. It's not as though we don't rejoice in Peter's deliverance. But we've got to have a perspective, which I believe Peter had, and I know Paul had, that for me to live is all about Jesus Christ. And to die is absolute, pure gain. It doesn't make any difference which direction it goes, because God is the sovereign Lord of history. And I am in His plan. And so I can trust Him whether I die or whether I live 
because he's good and he's got a plan. So an attitude of trust ought to be the attitude of the disciple. A perspective that's eternal ought to be the perspective of a disciple. And here's one that should not be. The perspective or attitude of a disciple. We should not have a sense of entitlement. You know the very common phrase, why do bad things happen to good people? The really hard, insensitive, theological answer is because sin rolls downhill. And on this occasion, it rolled right downhill from the top to the bottom. Herod was a devious, jealous, insecure dictator. And when he thought he was threatened, and when he needed the acclaim of the people, he took other people's lives. Sin rolling downhill. Why do bad things happen to good people? Because evil exists. And it's possible, it's possible that we could embrace this notion. You know it's possible. Please allow for the possibility that we could say to ourselves, I am following God. Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior. God is my heavenly Father, and He loves me more than my earthly Father. And all the descriptions we give of the love of God, and in the midst of that, we could have a heart, a heart of entitlement, my friends. This can't happen to me if God really loves me. That's possible, isn't it? I think it's not only possible, I think it's probable. <laughs> and I think if you were honest, you know you've been there. I have been. So our attitude cannot be an attitude of entitlement. What should it be? When we look into the Scripture and see a sovereign Lord who sometimes intervenes and other times does not. Well, it might sound cheesy, but what came to mind for me was Christmas and children. My kids always ask for certain things. And for all intents and purposes, I moved heaven and earth to find those things. They may not all have been of the highest quality. Other kids might have gotten more. But I wanted Christmas Day to be special. Because I'm their father. And on Christmas Day, they would come down the stairs 
And it was nothing but pure delight when they saw what they asked for. Screaming, yelling, hugging, kissing. You're the greatest dad on earth. That's really why I did it. Uh, <laughs> you know, it, it's like they didn't expect it, but they knew it was coming. They know me. I've got a history. I'm going to do my best every day of my life to come through for them. And when I do, they are surprised by joy, overwhelmed by my love. And I would like to think surprised by grace in a tiny little reflection of the way they're surprised by the grace of God. I don't always know what God's answer is going to be. But I can always be surprised by His grace and give Him praise and thanks and continue to follow because He's good. Let's pray together. Lord, I thank You that You are good and that as Your Word says, Your love endures forever. As the psalmist repeats on a number of different occasions, it, it goes on for generation to generation. The works of your hands praise you, and new generations see your amazing grace. We're especially grateful for the amazing grace that comes to us in Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord. That you who knew no sin became sin for us. You stood in our place. It's the ultimate gift of grace, and remind us, Lord, that that ultimate gift of grace is, well, it's not just about these circumstances in this life. On occasion, you just shower us with your grace, and you provide for us, and, and we see miracles. But beyond the curtain, which separates time and eternity, we know something else. We know something else about your character, that your good and your love endures forever. And that at the end, this thing called history will not just be an endless cycle of meaningless events, but this thing called history will be the culmination of everything that is good. We look at the book of Revelation and we see a promise. And one of these days, Lord, one of these days, either because of our death or because of your arrival, it's going to be the ultimate Christmas. We're going to be delighted by your grace and your presence. We long for that day in anticipation we trust you. As we follow, make us faithful. In the name of Christ, our risen Lord, we pray. Amen.